Hi, public health people. Welcome to the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap Podcast. My name is Domicella Grace Calhoun, MPH, and this week I will be recapping the June 4th, 2021 CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Let's get started. In Article 1, researchers looked at the estimated number of HIV infections between 1981 and 2019. June 1981 is when HIV first emerged as an immune deficiency phenomenon, which is why it's the starting point for this study. So the researchers used data reported to the National HIV Surveillance System to estimate the annual HIV incidence, meaning new infections, among people 13 years and older. They found that in 1981, HIV incidence in America was at 20,000 new infections. Then in 1984 and 1985, HIV incidence peaked at 130,400 new infections. So this was the peak of the epidemic. From 1991 to 2007, HIV incidence was stable, ranging from 50,000 to 58,000 new infections each year. Then by 2019, HIV incidence had decreased to 34,800 new infections, but disparities in HIV infections persist. The majority of HIV infections analyzed in this study stemmed from male-to-male sexual contact, which made up over 60% of HIV infections in both 1981, the beginning of the epidemic, and 2019, the end of the study period. From 1981 to 2019, we also saw an increase in the proportion of HIV infections among Black and Latino people. All three of these groups, men who have sex with men, Black people, and Latino people, are overrepresented in new HIV infections. Now, the largest relative reduction in HIV incidence that occurred over the study period occurred in people who inject drugs. In this group, incidence decreased by 93% from 34,500 cases in the 90s to 2,500 cases by 2019. This reduction in cases mainly occurred in the 90s and early 2000s. Not so much in this decade, partly because of the opioid epidemic, which is associated with increased drug use and needle sharing, therefore increased HIV. The thing about HIV is that there is no vaccine or cure, but there are tools for prevention. Tools like HIV testing, immediate and sustained treatment, pre-exposure prophylaxis, otherwise known as PrEP medication, and comprehensive syringe service programs can all be tailored, promoted, and sustained to reduce HIV transmission, disparities, and death. Also, syringe service programs are associated with decreased injection drug-associated HIV cases. The problem is they're not available in all areas. So there's still work to be done. The U.S. is still in an HIV epidemic with 34,800 new infections each year. We have programs and medications that have gotten us far in ending this epidemic, but continued promotion, acceptance, and utilization of these programs is critical to get us across the finish line. In Article 2, the researchers looked at the effect of HIV infection on COVID-19 outcomes in Zambia. Some previous studies have found independent associations between HIV and COVID-19 mortality. However, other studies have found no association between HIV factors and poor COVID-19 outcomes. So in this study, the researchers set out to assess the relationship between HIV infection and severe COVID and COVID-associated death. The researchers looked at data from patients with probable or confirmed COVID-19 that were admitted to specialized treatment centers in Zambia from March through December of 2020. The data analysis confirmed that HIV status alone 
was not associated with severe COVID or COVID-associated death. But among HIV-positive people, those with severe HIV disease were more likely to develop severe COVID-19 and were at an increased risk for COVID-19-associated death. So the implication here is that antiretroviral therapy treatment and achieving viral suppression in HIV-positive individuals is not only important for preventing HIV transmission, it's also imperative for attaining good health and avoiding severe COVID and COVID-19-related death. Okay, so in Article 3, the researchers aimed to assess how policy and funding decisions affected COVID-19 surveillance and reporting in South Sudan. So as of March 2021, African countries have reported some of the lowest COVID-19 incidents in the world. And it's unclear as to whether this is a reflection of effective COVID mitigation and response in Africa, or if this is more of a reflection of limited testing capacity. So the researchers looked at COVID-19 testing and subsequent positive cases for almost a year from April 2020 to February of 2021. And they assessed these cases in the context of whatever policy or funding changes were happening at the time in South Sudan. They looked at 99,533 tests, which accounted for 98% of all of the tests performed during the study period. So they looked at tests from five different ways of testing. They looked at testing from travel, so screening inbound travelers at points of entry, or screening people before outbound travel. They also looked at something that we'll be calling the alert system. So testing people rapidly who had COVID-19 compatible symptoms, who called an alert hotline. They also looked at contact tracing. So tests of people who were identified via contact tracing and then testing of symptomatic people seeking healthcare for any sort of reason. And so here are the main points of what they found by looking at the types of testing in the context of policy and funding in South Sudan. So for contact tracing and alert system type of testing, in July of 2020, funding and logistical support for both of these types of testing was reduced. And this led to a change in the contact tracing strategy where only symptomatic contacts or high risk contacts were recommended for testing instead of all contacts. So this change of strategy in addition to the reduction in funding dropped the percentage of testing through contact tracing and alert systems by 49%. The issue here is that these systems for testing had the highest likelihood of identifying COVID positive cases. In other words, these were high yield systems for testing. Each type of testing, alert systems and contact tracing had a COVID positivity rate of more than 20%. Now for testing related to travel, policy played a major role. So international borders were closed and a domestic travel ban was imposed until early of May 2020. After these travel restrictions lifted in early May of 2020, travel resumed and mandatory negative pre-travel tests were initiated. So between June of 2020 and February of 2021, pre-travel testing increased by more than 300%. And this type of testing ended up accounting for more than 90% of the COVID tests in this study. And remember, this study analyzed 98% of the tests that occurred in South Sudan during this entire time period. The thing is, this type of testing, the pre-travel testing, it didn't identify nearly as much COVID-19. 
Through this study, we can see how the policy requirement of negative test results prior to flying shifted testing priorities in South Sudan to focus on pre-travel testing, which doesn't target people at risk of COVID and doesn't identify nearly as many COVID-positive cases compared to alert systems or contact tracing. The implication is that policy and funding decisions for COVID testing in South Sudan, a country which has yet to be vaccinated, would ideally focus on high-risk, high-yield populations so that more COVID cases can be identified, which would more accurately quantify the COVID-19 situation in South Sudan. Also, of course, testing high-risk, high-yield populations like through contact tracing and alert systems would optimize the use of South Sudan's limited testing resources and likely catch more positive cases, therefore hopefully be more effective in slowing the spread of COVID in South Sudan. The fourth article for this week centers on disparities in COVID-19 vaccination coverage, specifically disparities related to social vulnerability and urbanicity of a region. So in the first two and a half months of the COVID-19 vaccination campaign in the United States, vaccination disparities among people of different social vulnerabilities were recorded. Now, as vaccine eligibility and availability has expanded, it's really important to make sure that the communities who were disproportionately affected by COVID have equitable vaccine coverage. So in this article, researchers used COVID vaccine administration data and social vulnerability index data to determine whether COVID vaccination inequities have persisted beyond the initial months of the vaccination campaign. So researchers looked at social vulnerability disparities in vaccines overall and also by urbanicity. Urbanicity meaning they looked at big cities, suburbs, small towns, and rural areas to see whether the area a person lived in affected the magnitude of the vaccine disparity. And the researchers found that as of May 1st, 2021, vaccination coverage was lower among adults who lived in high social vulnerability counties. And these differences were most pronounced in suburbs, rural areas, and counties with low socioeconomic status and higher percentages of households with children, single parents, and people with disabilities. This data tells us that disparities in county-level vaccination coverage by social vulnerability have increased even as vaccine eligibility and access have increased. The implication here is that knowing the areas and populations where the vaccine disparities are most pronounced can help public health professionals with vaccine outreach. The final article in this week's report looked at excess death estimates in patients with end-stage renal disease. So end-stage renal disease, or ESRD, is a condition where a person's kidneys stop functioning permanently to the point where they need regular long-term dialysis or a kidney transplant in order to live. Since 2001, the mortality rate for patients with ESRD has been declining, which is awesome. But with COVID, ESRD patients are at a higher risk for COVID-related disease and death. So in this study, excess death estimates for patients with ESRD were calculated by comparing observed monthly deaths during February through August of 2020 to the predicted deaths for this same time period. And the researchers modeled predicted deaths by using ESRD mortality data from the previous three years to estimate what the deaths should look like for this study period of February through August of 2020. The researchers used data on 798,511 
ESRD patients treated in Medicare-certified dialysis facilities and kidney transplant centers across the United States. And they found an estimated 8.7 to 12.9 excess deaths per 1,000 ESRD patients for the period of February through August of 2020, which means that during these pandemic months of February through August of 2020, a total of 6,953 to the upper limit of 10,316 excess deaths occurred out of a population of 798,511 ESRD patients. And the reasons for excess deaths in this ESRD population could be that patients abruptly faced unmet needs for in-person health services due to the pandemic, or that COVID-19 transmission from other patients, staff, or community members affected this population, which again is vulnerable to COVID-19 disease and death. The implication here is that excess mortality is a really important way to quantify and determine priority populations for COVID-19 education, interventions, and vaccination efforts. And that is it for this week's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Recap. Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Follow the Instagram at mmwrecap and tune back in next Wednesday for the next recap podcast. Otherwise, have a wonderful week.